You're listening to Transparency Talk with Trustwell, a podcast discussing the latest trends in technology in the food and supplement industries, featuring conversations with regulatory experts, quality and safety champions, and thought leaders across the industry. The podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only. Welcome to today's episode of Transparency Talk with Trustwell. My name is Katie Jones, and I'm the Chief Customer Officer here at Trustwell. Today on the podcast, we're going to discuss a topic at the core of our mission here at Trustwell, the burden of foodborne illness. Globally, there are over 600 million cases of foodborne illness, resulting in over 400,000 deaths every single year. And sadly, 30% of those deaths occur in children under the age of five. And according to the CDC, an estimated 48 million people get sick in the U.S. alone, 128,000 are hospitalized, and 3,000 die each year from foodborne diseases. That's one in 10 people globally and one in seven in the U.S. alone getting sick from something that everyone should be able to do safely, just feed and nourish themselves and their families. At Trustwell, we find this unacceptable and feel that more can be done to address this preventable public health problem. And here on the podcast today to help us dive into this issue more is Dr. Darren Detweiler. Dr. Detweiler is an Associate Professor of Regulatory Affairs at Northeastern University's College of Professional Studies. He's an author, speaker, and founder and CEO of Detweiler Consulting. He teaches on a variety of topics, food regulatory policy, specializing in food safety, the global economics of food and agriculture, blockchain, food authenticity, and a bunch more. He is advising the industry, NGOs, and government agencies addressing food safety and authenticity issues in the U.S. and internationally. Dr. Detweiler also received the International Association for Food Protection, the IFP, Distinguished Service Award. Welcome to the podcast, Aaron. Thank you very much. Now, you were um, our first uh, speaker, uh, keynote speaker, actually, at uh, at ReConnect, our uh, user group conference, a, a number of years ago. So it's so great to, to reconnect. Um, and I know that you've been super, super busy um, and, uh, and getting out and, and just all over the place recently at IFT and, and a bunch of others. So it must have been, been a very busy time for you. It is. It is amazing how many locations I get to uh, share with audiences or share with industry leaders uh, some some significant perspectives. Now, um, you spoke at Reconnect as I as I referenced and talked about your career and a career pivot that you made and devoted your life to uh, the cause of reducing foodborne illness, and you came into this pursuit. Uh, following a, a very deeply personal tra- tragedy in your life. Um, do you mind sharing your story with our listeners? Sure. And I I thank you for the opportunity to share this. Um, so I'm 24. And I'm walking this earth with the kind of confidence that one hmm. who had just spent six years supervising a nuclear propulsion plant on a submarine uh, could walk around with. And because I was 24, there was a, I guess, an air of invincibility and, and immortality. Um, but then came a moment where 
you know, unlike all the drills and training that I had been through and I was prepared for for incidents to happen, an incident took place in my personal life that I'm, I'm not alone. I was completely unprepared. I did not know what to do. And unfortunately, you were just sharing some numbers. Um, in the United States, there are thousands of families who find themselves in the same situation where they don't know what to do. Um, the earliest news about uh, an, an E. coli outbreak, well, first off the back, no, no one knew what E. coli was. It was mm-hmm, 1993. Mm-hmm. And then they think it's tied to food, and then they think it's tied to hamburgers, and then they think it's, in my case, it was near Seattle, and then at some point it was Jack in the Box. So you start saying things like, well, we're just going to avoid hamburgers. We're just going to avoid that restaurant. We're just going to avoid eating in that city, and I'm worried about my nine-year-old. I was never even on my radar. Never on my radar was my, my 16-month-old son. Mm-hmm. Um, but he is in daycare at the time, and um, all of a sudden one day there's a notice on the door saying that another child in the daycare was found to be positive with E. coli symptoms. And all of a sudden, and this is like 90 minutes north of Seattle. This is like, oh, my God, this is close, right? This is here. Um, <clears throat> the notice said to look for symptoms. We saw symptoms that night, and this started this journey where you know, he was at the local hospital, uh, he was getting worse, he was airlifted to Children's Hospital, and it just was this month of a blur. And I'm left with these memories, these these like, these snapshots, uh, these, these Polaroid images, if you will, in my brain of, um, you know, ho- holding him on my lap on a hospital bed. Um, and he's 60 months old, I can't explain to him what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, but because he was showing problems with renal failure, um, couldn't, you know, feed him or anything. He was on IV, but he looked up at the pole and saw the IV bag hanging there, clear with liquid and there's marks on it. And to him, it was like a bottle. And he would, mm. even though he had uh, tubes in his arm and tape on his arm and, you know, he'd reach for it and he would say, Baba. Um, and uh, I've, I'll never forget the image of him being loaded onto a helicopter to be airlifted down to Seattle. And I'll never forget um, seeing him being brought out of surgery, uh, being placed in a medically induced coma, and um, the doctors explaining that he had the majority of his intestines removed because they were completely destroyed. And I'll never forget just how this little blonde hair, blue eyed boy body was dwarfed by wires and tubes and monitors and equipment and um, how you watch the numbers and you learn enough to say you don't want that number to go down or you don't want that number to go up. But over time, that's what happened every single day for the next few weeks mm. until, um, you know, that final image of him outside the hospital again being carried in the world's smallest white coffin. Um, you know, you, you, when you learn about failures in food safety and E. coli on your child's deathbed, at the same time, you know, you hear him say his last words, Baba, where he wanted, he wanted a return to normalcy. He wanted comfort. Um, the next day, um, I got a call on the phone from Air Force One and President Clinton, um, 
who had recently taken office was um, about to land in Seattle and had planned to visit us when he learned of my son's death. And he wanted to talk father to father. And um, he's like, what do we do? I said, I, I, I don't know what we do, but I can't imagine not being, you know, vocal or not not trying at least. And I can't imagine um, here I am learning that I'm going to live in a world where I lost my son, but right. I can't imagine living in a universe where my son lost his father. Hmm. And so even though I didn't know what to do, I knew that I would be doing something. And But I didn't know that 30 years from now, hmm. I would still be doing this, right. but to a completely different degree than yeah. what I was doing for the first few years after my son's death. Well, I am sure... Um... And I know because uh, we know, we know each other obviously over the years. And uh, Riley, um, your son's name, um, that uh, how incredibly proud um, I think you know he would be to see what a profound impact you have had, um, and to go through such um, an unspeakable event in your life, um, but to transition and to use that uh, to the degree that you have. Um, thank you first of all, for everything that you've done and to um, take that unfortunate tragedy and, and to, uh, to channel it into creating change, um, which you, you have done. And, you know, and I think that there's been so much media surrounding the anniversary, right, of, of that outbreak, which I, I do think that, you know, while that wasn't a new phenomenon, obviously, in the food industry, I think the combination of how profound it was and that it took the lives of children and um, the combination of, you know, increased media coverage. I mean, I think it was just a perfect storm that really did help project the industry forward quite a bit. Um, a lot of that, uh, a lot of those topics are going to be covered in an upcoming documentary um, that you're, that you're featured in. Um, I saw you've been out at the, uh, um, what, what film festival was it? Uh, the, you were... the, yeah. The, the Tribeca film festival. Yes, that's in it. New York was the, uh, where there was a world premiere and be, without spoiling anything, um, <laughs> you know, most people are going to see this on their couch in their living room. And yes. By the time I got out to New York, I had already seen it twice on my couch in my living room and seeing it in New York was again i'm no spoilers here yes. uh first uh it was like wow there's a red carpet and um there was you know literally standing on the red carpet taking photos there's a getty image uh of of a lot of the participants and i'm in nice that. um there was the like okay this is actually real you know this is tangible this is this is uh really happening to be in an auditorium, you know, a, a theater with, with, I would imagine 85 to 90% of the people in there had no idea what they were getting themselves into. Uh, right. There was a small group of us that, yes, we were in that, we were behind the scenes, all that kind of yep. stuff. Um, but, um, uh, you know, there was a moment where I was, I found myself getting extremely emotional because um, it was as if, and again, I had already seen it twice before this, but it was as if I was seeing Riley's story being immortalized mm -hmm. and, and um, um, 
you know, here you are in New York and you've got the 9-11 memorial. And yes, there were 3,000 souls that, that were lost on that day. But you talked about the numbers earlier. Just in the United States, some 3,000 uh, families every year uh, lose a loved one and, and will live with a chair forever empty at their family table as a result of this. But there's no statue there's no monument mm -hmm. there's no memorial and i'm not saying that there has to be but to me it was almost as if this documentary um serves as as the closest thing that that not only myself but so many families will ever have this is a means of validating that their story uh is is seen by people and may have an impact on those who can play a role in food safety those who are making policy decisions mm -hmm. those who are who are leading companies in doing this and um you know there's also an element of just the emotional uh, context of of storytelling in, in in this sense so many people ask me oh did people like come up to you and shake your hand after the after the premiere? And I said, no, people came up to me and they were hugging me and crying right. me, uh, yeah. because I was telling them this story that, you know, for the average viewer of this show, of this documentary, most people just don't know. Yep. Um, and, you know, that kind of goes back to one of my biggest goals of being involved in this production was I didn't want this to be here's this documentary about food safety and it's so shallow it's it's right. so one-dimensional it doesn't really talk about the true burden of disease right. you know it's like oh there's so many people get sick every year yeah but you know people die well there's numbers okay but there's also stories and families and faces behind these stories and to to bring i've got this treasure trove of you know i've been doing this for 30 years right i've got a lot of photo and videos and archives and news news footage and and um, so much uh, of the story in that context was brought into this documentary um, to kind of complement me telling this story uh, about this true burden of disease and what unfolded at the time. I, I think it's so important to make sure that consumers are seeing the, the human impact, the human side of this. And I think that, um, no spoilers, uh, <laughs> again, as we said, um, I will say that uh, the, um, the preview, so if you watch the preview, there's this point made and it's challenging this common misperception that the US food supply chain is quote, safest in the world. and you know, clearly lots of things going well to get food from point A to point Z safely, but there's still a lot of work that we have left to do. Um, so the production team <laughs> made an interesting comment about that exact piece here and that, so with the pandemic and all these different things hmm. and the fact that, you know, Poisoned is based off this book called Poisoned. Right. Um, but if you were to read the book, you'd see that there's a lot more in the documentary than just what's in the book. The book focused on 1993. This book focuses on much more. Right. And so I served as a technical consultant with my book, Food Safety Past, Present, and Predictions, which looked at the next 30 years right. uh, between now and then. And uh, so I was one of the first people on film um, 
in the whole production thing because realize there's also the pandemic going on and all these poor mm-hmm. and all these different things and so i said i made the statement that i i am t- sick and tired of always hearing that phrase uh, <laughs> america has the safest food supply in the world because to me it's it's an excuse that we don't have to do more mm. more so than it is a therefore you know let's rise to the challenge and make sure we can up, you know, live up to this this label right right so the you know the production team said you know you said that and that stuck with us and every other person we interviewed we asked them either you know have they heard this phrase or what is a phrase they didn't want to put the words in their mouth and this phrase kept coming up this phrase what what's the phrase you hear they said this phrase it was amazing how many times people were talking about this phrase in the documentary because we all hear it um oh you know it's okay you know it's 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 like it's up there I don't want to cross political boundaries or whatever, but you hear things like, now's not the time to talk about gun control or thoughts and prayers, or this is not the time to talk about this. This Mm -hmm. is not the place to talk about this. It gets to a point, especially with food safety, when you you live in a world of seemingly endless uh, cycle of failure and recall and outbreak, where when is the time that we talk about this? When is the time that we act on this? And if we're waiting for this magic or silver bullet down the road and we're just going to go ahead and adopt that policy or adopt that technology, we're foolish to think that there's there's nothing for us to do between now and then. Right. There's literally there's never a time where it's not a good time to be trying to improve what we're doing in terms of food safety and to be persevering that you know the the the, the to persevere and to 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 really say look this is this is a non-stop thing this is not a one time a year during an audit thing or mm-hmm. inspection or whatever this is a continuous uh, improvement plan this is a continuous application this is a continuous cycle of what we're, we're doing here in terms of trying to prevent these failures yeah i think to your point if you're going to say that trying to say that directly to someone who has either been is sitting at that table with the empty seat or you know one of the hundreds of thousands of people who are and I know this is a theme that comes up in the documentary as well who are have been profoundly impacted they have survived but they've been profoundly impacted by foodborne illness it has absolutely changed their life um, and, they, and it's something they will have to deal with for the rest of their life you know and there are there are two things that I have learned that well there's many things I've learned but <laughs> but a, a few things that stuck out with to me over the years how many families I've talked with um, who've buried a child and I used to think of things like almost like binary right you either lived or you died right Right. I talked with this mother once who her two-year-old got sick from milk and luckily she survived. But physical disability, cognitive disabilities, she will never live a, you know, a, a, a lifestyle uh, that she, you know, um, a quality of life that she had before her illness. She'll never have that. And um, the mom said, look, the amount of times when. Uh, so I had said that um, I told her that 
it always amazed me when people say, talk about my son. Oh, he's in a better place now. It's God's will. It's like, you don't say that to a parent who loses a child, right? Mm -hmm. And she goes, well, for me, it's when people say, you're so lucky. You're so lucky she lived. Mm. And she goes, I feel as if the daughter I had, Mm. this is not her. Yeah. This this is not the daughter I had. These are not the plans. These are not the dreams. This Mm -hmm. is not the future. It's as if my daughter died and I'm left with this, this replacement kind of a thing. My, she says, you know, her, her husband left, uh, she's left to raise this daughter and it's a completely different life. And, and as much as she is lucky and happy and fortunate that her daughter lived, she can't express the fact that it's like, I can't say that I'm disappointed because my life will never, or my, my life will never be the same. And my daughter's life will never have that quality of living that she was supposed to have if she had not gotten sick. And she feels this guilt. She feels this guilt Mm -hmm. that she's lucky to have a child that lived. Yep. But mixed feelings in terms of the fact that it's not the same child. Right. And that to me was just this profound, you know, this is over, 10, 15 years ago or so, this profound awakening about this perspective of things that um, uh, I had. Um, You know, there's also that element of just talking with families over and over again, and they'll say things like, this this isn't supposed to happen. How is this happening? And even just earlier this year, a woman whose daughter is in, she's recovering, but she was at the time in very very critical condition in a children's hospital in Louisiana. And she goes, my God, Darren, it's 2023. This is the United States of America. How can this be happening? And my hair on my arms literally stood up because I remember standing in front of a camera, a news camera back in 1993 saying, this is 1993. This is the United States of America. How can this be happening? Right. And this is a reality for so many people that we've taken the notion that oh things must be better now they must be safer than they are you know because of that they, they, things must be better now and you couple that with the america has the safest food supply in the world and it kind of erodes this idea of we need to be aware and have assumptions around invisible threats out there even associated with our food we okay. will tell our kids to hold our hands and look both ways when we cross the street we'll tell our children to put their seatbelt on or you know we don't start the car but we don't have conversations with our kids about food safety and hand washing and things like that nearly yeah. as much as we should in America. Yeah, yeah. So on that topic, so our listeners mostly are in that, you know, whether it's product development, R&D, food safety, supply chain. When we think about how what what is next, right? When we think about what do we what do we need to focus on moving forward? What what do you advocate for in the industry? There's the consumer awareness and there's a lot and some really great organizations that are helping support that completely agree, uh, does not get enough attention. As many, I think, safety related topics seem to, <laughs> to not get enough attention. Um, from a food safety professional standpoint for our listeners, what do you feel like is the most needed uh, you know, areas as we move forward? This answer is in two, three-part segments. One is that every time there is a failure, 
and the public is made aware of a failure, mm -hmm. a company representative will come forward before the cameras, before the media and say, we are going to prioritize food safety. We're going to put someone in a role. We're going to retrain. We're going to go back and look at our uh, protocols and things like that. And I always think, why weren't they doing this all along? Right. Why wasn't there always someone looking at this? Why weren't they always reevaluating this? Why weren't they always prioritizing this? Why weren't they always, you know, uh, doing this, right? Um, so we need to make sure that we always prioritize, invest in, and invest can be interpreted different ways. It's not about mm -hmm. money and technology, but it's also about their people, right? Right. Uh, and, 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 and test recalls and testing their system and stuff. And we always need to train. But, you know, we we often, and I'm sure you've heard this before, people talking about the jungle. People people talk about, you know, oh, it's up to Sinclair, 1906, the jungle. Oh, 1993, Jack in the Box, E. coli, right? You know, most people know about the jungle, but they haven't read it or they get the gist of it. But mm -hmm. there were, was a literary review of the jungle from 1906 in the London Daily Times. It, before it got into the actual literature review, it talked about the real world implications of the jungle. And it basically said that the things described by Mr. Sinclair happened yesterday are happening today and tomorrow and will continue to happen until some Hercules comes to cleanse the filthy stable. Which is perhaps in 1906, a very poetic way of saying that food safety requires a Herculean effort, mm -hmm. an enormous amount of work, strength, and courage. And so while we can look at technology, and we have to, we must look at technology in, in terms of the work and the strength that we could put into, we need to look at data, we need to look at data analytics, we need to look at predictive analytics, not just reactive, we mm -hmm. need to look at uh, so many different things in terms of technology, but we can't just look at technology alone, we have to also make, remember uh, and prioritize the fact that it takes courage from humans to ask the right questions, to do the at data analysis and and go beyond return on investment or cost benefit analysis or, or or whatever it is in terms of the idea of that idea of keeping the eyes on the mission that they're really supposed to be doing, keeping the eyes on the idea of how is this going to impact their brand reputation? How do we do this in terms of the trust we build with our consumers? How do, do we write the, or ask the right questions? Do we analyze it the right way? Do we test to make sure that our data showed us this, we acted on this, and it actually did stop or, or you know, prevent what could have happened if this data had not found it? Because data is one thing, actionable information is another mm -hmm. actionable information what's the difference between actionable information and data i would say the courage plays a big role mm. in that um and without that you're left with a bunch of memory stored somewhere um and um collecting virtual dust so courage i think is incredibly important in this bigger picture thing we have to validate it we have to build it we have to nurture it we have to um you know, and it's a very emotional human element that goes back to what we said earlier in terms of the fact that, you know, this is why we need to make sure that the true burden of disease is understood and why mm -hmm. when we talk about companies that are reflecting on their last 30 years, the legacy of their 30 years um, from 1993, that's great. But what are you going to do about the next 30 years? Because I guarantee in the year 2053, whoever's at the helm of any company will likely not have even been born 
at the time of the 1993 outbreak um, that is such a landmark event that right. has, you know propelled our conversations for all these decades and so again courage courage has to go hand in hand with the technology and the prioritization to um, to, to to basically form a compass for the road ahead that's such an excellent point um and i mean Trustwell is a technology company. I will be the first to say technology alone cannot solve this problem, cannot solve and fully address it. We have to have the people, the change management, the the cultural force has to be there. And, you know, I I you know, personally, many of our customers working squarely in that food safety space, a significant amount of uh courage and passion in this industry, but it has to resonate at the top. It has to resonate where budgets are set, where strategic priorities are set, and that if that if food safety does not have a seat at that table, I think that's where you can see, you can start to see cracks um, where there is this more reactive type approach perhaps um, versus if food safety really is at the core uh, from a cultural standpoint and uh, and a topic of conversation in the earnings calls at the board level, that's really where it has to happen um, in order for it to have, I think, really lasting change. And I, I think there's, you know, um, because it is an investment um, and it has to be made an investment and a priority at the top level. Well, especially when you look at it in terms of the idea that there's a cost to compliance and there's a cost of non-compliance. Mm-hmm. And the best that we've been able to kind of determine is, again, this is a, you know, kind of a theoretical, but it costs 17 times more to be out of compliance than it does to be in compliance. You know, think about how much money some companies have lost in these bigger, you know, headline capturing outbreaks, right? If they had invested 5% of the amount of money that was lost into food safety, education, investments, technology, prioritization, everything, imagine how they could have prevented, you know, some of these outbreaks, you know, you look at not just the, the government finds them this much, or these lawsuits now cost this much, but the lost revenue is this much and the New York Stock Exchange value goes down for 15 quarters of trading kind of a thing. You know, take a small portion of that overall money that was lost and invest that into food safety. And wow, you're also investing into your brand reputation. You're also investing into people whose leadership skills really amount to something. You're also investing into employees that want to work for you because you do value food safety and because no one wants to work for a company that sends people to the hospital or to the grave. You know, um, it's like, you know, you had one job not to kill your end users, right? Um, so it it is a big picture. And sometimes it takes courage to say, and I've been in this situation where people have called me out to help them because the, the VP of food safety can't convince the VP of finance that they need to spend $2 million to replace a production floor uh, because it's 10 years beyond its lifespan or something like that. And they can't get adequate testing for or sampling going on. And it's going to be a problem. And finance says, I don't think we need to spend $2 million. And, but the food say you know, the, the uh, FSQA folks are saying, we don't want to send people to the hospital. Um, 
it's 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 it takes a lot of courage to yes. do a lot of this work and um, there's no amount of chat GTP or AI <laughs> is going to replace courage. So true. <laughs> so true. That's a maybe that's a whole nother future podcast episode, Darren. How about that? <laughs> Have you back on the podcast to talk all about that topic? Because <laughs> I think that is very much worth diving into some application there for sure. Um, but God, especially in this field, there's just such this human element to it. It cannot it cannot be replaced. I think that um, this documentary is going to open some eyes. Um, and I really hope it is. I hope it's going to open eyes of consumers, of, of executives, of board members of these food companies, um, and what really more needs to be done to advance the industry and address food safety, again, on top of everything that that is happening. For the listeners we have today, like I said, who are mostly in that food supply chain, um, product development, how can companies prepare? This might, this might raise some questions from their customers, right? So this is it's on Netflix. Uh, like, like, like you said, I think everybody's going to, you know, uh, Friday night, uh, you know, want to watch a documentary. I'm a huge documentary junkie. Um, get in there and then start asking questions. You know, perhaps I'm, there's going to be some more social media. How do you how do you prepare answers in terms of consumers about, you know, the, the safety of their products? I'm glad you asked that because, you know, there's a great focus on transparency within the industry. Mm-hmm. You listen to the FDA, you listen to all these different things. There's a great emphasis on, on transparency. But one of the things I've noticed over the last 30 years is that, you know, back in 1993, consumers are not considered to be stakeholders. Mm. In fact, there's a scene in the documentary, you might have seen this, where there's like these baby chicks that just hatched and they're going down a conveyor belt and they just drop off the end. Right. Um, you know, I fear that there's companies that think of their consumers in the same exact way, that they're just, you know, they just drop off and they'll, they'll, they'll be more consumers mm. um, down uh, down river or what, up river, whatever it is, you mm-hmm. know, coming down the conveyor belt. The point being is that we're not the same consumers that we were 30 years ago. Uh, we are much more social media plays a role in this. The Netflix documentary will make, play a big role in this in terms of the idea that we realize that uh, we have a voice in this, that we are going to be a key role in terms of the idea of trust and that, um, you know, and we, we even see with social media, people are generating information about food safety. We're not just asking questions. And I think the other thing, too, is that as opposed to three decades ago, today, consumers see their food money as a way of voting. If I don't get that transparency, if I don't see the trust with you, I'll go to that store or I'll go to yes. that restaurant or I'll buy from that brand. And um, th- that transparency goes hand in hand. It's not just a responsibility in terms of your brand reputation and what you do with the, the government and regulatory uh, policy, all that kind of stuff. But it is in terms of what consumers want to see. Have you ever been to like one of those small diners, like 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 a train car kind of small diner? Kind oh, of yes. <laughs> where they literally crack the eggs right there and right. They pour the pancake batter right there. I've talked with some of these owners of these and they say, look, there's those restaurants like, you know, the ones where food is made behind a door. Right. And you don't see that. Um, But people come to these diners and they expect that transparency. They want to hear the egg being and see the egg being cracked. They want to see it being poured. They want to see the bacon being cooked, the the potatoes being cut or whatever. Right. There are people that that is part of 
trust and transparency and the overall experience in terms of their food and why they decide to go to a place like that uh, to eat. So, and now of course we're buying food online. You know, right. we have third-party delivery and we have ghost kitchens and this plays a an inter, a, a disruptor, an interrupter, if you will, in terms of the whole trust process. So I think that building trust is going to be one of the key things that people are going to look at in terms of a direct result of this documentary, people asking questions, people demanding more transparency and demanding that the companies invest more publicly in terms of their trust. We're no longer a, a, a population that just takes people's word for granted on, on uh, you know, on fun food, especially yeah. when we're putting it on our family's plates. Absolutely. Um, as the mom of a, a son who has a life-threatening uh, tree nut allergy, I I am making decisions based on a company's understanding of their supply chain, of the exposure in those facilities. And if you cannot tell me that these products were developed in a safe manner for my son to eat that food, I will not buy it. But Katie, I would imagine that there's something that goes through your mind every single time you're out in the world and you're getting food somewhere. You may have a corporate executive that understands it. You may have an FSQA worker at the back of the corporate office that understands it. But you are basically, you know, your your son's life depends on that consumer-facing yes. front-end uh, server, whatever is, it doesn't matter what the company has done in the background. Right. If it has not gotten all the way to who may be the least experienced, least yes. trained person that you are interacting with. Yes. I can tell you, uh, in the first 10 seconds, whether they know even shorter than that in terms of how they respond and that response of whether or not, uh, you know, we're going to be eating, <laughs> eating there or buying those foods. And you bring you brought up um, the online element, um, the amount of information that needs to be, you know, provided online, because if it's not provided, I'm not going to buy it. I need to have that, that level of transparency. And, uh, and it's just, uh, there is so much more momentum and movement at the consumer level. I completely agree with you. And voting with the dollar or the the pocketbook per se, I think is uh, you know is the way that consumers are going to reward companies who are investing in this, and uh, you know and putting their uh, their their money towards those companies that are. Well, we're already seeing. You know, I mean. It makes you sound old and you say things like, I can't believe it's this much. I remember when it was, you know, it only cost this much. Very and now true. it costs this much kind of a thing, right? And, and, uh, but so we get it. Oh, it's because of gas prices. Well, gas prices came down. So why are the food prices not come down? Mm. Oh, well, we invest more into food safety and transparency. Okay. So now we expect it because we're paying for it because this box of this or this bag of this, which used to cost $1.99, now costs $7.99. Um, what are we paying for? Are we paying for corporate executives' paychecks and Christmas bonuses? Or are we paying for traceability, for transparency, for for you know the training and investment and the prioritization of food safety, which should be the first job, the first priority in terms of anything? Yeah. And uh, you know, again, it's it's like you can't just say, look, it's got this label on it. That should be all you need to know in terms of trusting us and giving us your money. That doesn't work anymore. 
Very true. Very true. Well, Darren, I cannot thank you enough for uh, coming on the show, um, sharing your story and uh, discussing this exciting uh, documentary. Like I said, I think it's going to raise a lot of um, necessary and overdue uh, questions and uh, and really raise awareness about the importance of this issue and, and really put a face to it. Um, so I can't thank you enough for your time and uh, uh, just for being on the podcast with us. Thank you very much. All right. So for our listeners, we will be including within the show notes a link to that uh, documentary, Poisoned, uh, which is being released August 2nd on Netflix. Thank you so much for tuning into Transparency Talk with Trustwell, where we explore the critical role of transparency in building trust and driving positive change in today's food chain. Thank you for listening to Transparency Talk with Trustwell. To learn more about Trustwell and its technology platform that connects product formulation, nutrition analysis, and compliant labeling with traceability, recall readiness, and supply chain transparency, please visit www.trustwell.com.